0: So this morning, as you see there, what was read for you, we're just going to cover um, verse 10 this morning, and then we'll jump into the other uh, biographical material, verse 11 and following next week, and that really needs to be taken together as a single unit. Um, And I I couldn't get there this week, because I think verse 10 is important for us to pause on just momentarily, because there's a really important implication from verse 10 um, that all of us need to receive and wrestle with. Um, So, we'll get to that in a a few moments, but really, I just want to look at verse 10 this morning with you, just for a few minutes, and then for the implication of Paul's speech in verse 10, to rest heavy upon each of us in a matter of introspection and honesty. Um, If you recall, just to set the context for his comments of verse 10, if you remember, the argument of the book so far is essentially that there's an attack on Paul, the apostle, and upon his gospel. That is what he has preached to the churches of southern Galatia uh, years before. It's this argument that essentially, it's not accidentally, like something kind of is a little off, but rather the attack on Paul, who is not physically present, is that his gospel is essentially incomplete. Meaning it's a matter of substance. It's a matter of right versus wrong those on the ground at Galatia, who we have labeled historically Judaizers, those who are trying to uh, Judaize the fledgling Christian faith at the beginning here in its early onset. They're imagining that Paul, the attack upon his gospel, being a cheap or incomplete version of the true gospel, essentially that Paul's failure is the idea Paul's failure to have the Gentile converts circumcised is simply a cheap trick to please people and win followers. You remember we talked a few weeks ago about the idea of covenants, biblical covenants, where the idea or the impulse here in Galatia is even coming from. Where's the argument coming from that you ought to be circumcised? in order to be a follower of the church or to be following Christ or to be considered a Christian. Where does the argument come from that you need to be circumcised? And again, we trace it all the way back to the great Abrahamic covenant. Which Paul will get to develop later on in the book of Galatians because he too sees that is a critical component of Christian faith, understanding that we are the heirs of the covenant of Abraham. He is our spiritual father. But uh, precisely how we inherit with Abraham, there's a distinction being made here. Again, among the Judaizers' labeling of Paul, he's simply failing to tell you the whole truth. He's telling you part of the truth. Why would he do so? Why wouldn't he tell us the whole truth? Well, because he simply wants to please people. Think about it. If you're a Gentile convert... Is it your joy in the Lord next to be circumcised? Probably not. Not thinking, great, I knew I signed up for this. No. So what if I told you a partial gospel? Gave you a sense of relief from your burden. Something that can be found in the Lord. And you don't have to undergo circumcision to share in it. This is the attack that's being leveled against Paul from those in the community at Galatia, those, as he says, false teachers, the Judaizers. Essentially, if we then added, so what are they saying in distinction from Paul? And what are they telling the church at Galatia? It is something like this. Yes, as I've said to you for weeks now, I, I, I'm making this argument from the book. Yes, faith is necessary. It's a component of your faith. Christian identity. Faith is necessary. Sounds fair. But it isn't the empty vessel that receives the work of another, as Paul suggests. You see, that sets you up to a whole other system of doctrine, a whole other set of understandings. It rearranges the idea of redemption. So what must I do to believe? Yes, you you must exercise faith. It's necessary. But faith itself is not an empty vessel that receives the work of another. But rather, faith actively works. How so? By adding to it the saving and necessary components of circumcision in certain lawful observances. You see, this is the gospel being offered the churches of Galatia, that faith actively works, and without such works as here, circumcision and lawful observance, one cannot share in the salvation of God. This is the fuller gospel one that guarantees one is to be made whole and righteous before God. What Paul is offering you, what Paul came earlier and offered here and continues to preach is a cheap trick to please people and win followers. We are here to tell you the whole truth. So Paul hears of this going on in Galatia and it spurs the entire letter to the churches of Galatia. And we've covered it before, that's why you see such Um, aggressive rhetoric throughout the course of the book. Later, he'll call upon these people, as we now know, because we've been acquainted with the book for several weeks now. He calls upon them to mutilate themselves. Again, even in your own gospel, you're only going halfway. Just finish the job. Guarantee you're really righteous. Righteous. But this morning in verse 10, before we get there, we simply see in verse 10 that Paul takes on this issue of of basically being a charlatan, telling half-truths in order to win friends and influence others. And so he takes it on with this rhetorical move, with a rhetorical question in verse 10, essentially saying this, Am I now seeking the approval of man? This This is him speaking to the churches. Am I now seeking the approval of man? That's weird. From what we all know, you and I, what we together know renders this absolutely impossible. Notice how he does so. He addresses them with this idea of a shared historical awareness. Let me read for you verse 10, and we'll walk through it very carefully. For am I now? And as a reader, uh, he gets through uh, speaking of these contrasting gospels, that there is no other good news. Remember, he jumps up, I'm astonished you're quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ are turning to a different gospel. Well, scratch that. There are no Other systems of truly good news. There is no other good news. That's what he says in verse 7 not that there is another good news, there is but one. And then, after he gets done with this issue of let these men who are changing the gospel, altering it unto damnation, let them be damned themselves, let them be accursed. And then he moves. So, so am I the one that moved? Am I the one that's changed? And as a reader, in beginning in verse 10, you highlight the term now. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? This certainly is the tone with which Paul writes it. Now, when he adds now, you see, he is appealing to events that they, the churches of Galatia, and the apostle, share. Am I now different than when I was with you? Am I now fundamentally preaching something different and acting as a different individual? So now, as in contrasting to when I was with you before, am I now different? You see, if you read between the lines, historically, there are two things that stand out in Paul's mind to the church of Galatia. We'll explore them just briefly. Number one, those congregations absolutely knew Paul's gospel to be consistent. They absolutely knew that. It's not like they're confused, or maybe they didn't get what he meant, or now they've heard him tell it five different times in five different meetings. He preached one sermon this way, and he preached another one that way. He's saying, am I now different, implying I was the man yesterday that I am today in the gospel ministry, and I was with you, and you know for sure the consistency of my doctrine. Again, you see that earlier in in his statements in verse 6, that we've made much up of our time together. But again, he's astonished that they are deserting. It isn't Paul who's deserting. It isn't Paul who's changing the content of the gospel. I'm not different. Neither is the content of my speech. And then you remember, he makes it not just simply about his presentation of the gospel, but the brothers who are also with him. That is, he's appealing to a Catholicity of doctrine. This is the accepted gospel of the church. You see that again in verse 3. And all the brothers who are with who? Who are with me. And then he makes it about plurality in verse 8 once again. But if we, the brothers, we, or or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we, the brothers, all of us, the church Catholic, have preached To you, let him be accursed. Paul says, am I now substantively different? You must prove the case. Because you're the ones deserting the gospel. I have many witnesses with me that prove what I said before is what I say today. I'm not simply trying to win friends and influence others. It's not a popularity contest for Paul. And he'll make that abundantly clear as we move into the biographical sections next week. The second thing that they know, this is why he can say, how would I? am I now different than the man that you knew me before? You're going to have to make your case that I'm the one who's drifted, that I'm the one who's telling a half story, that I'm deserting the gospel because you know better. You know my gospel has been absolutely consistent. Number two, the other thing that he can rely upon them or require of them is the fact that they know... His gospel has been hard fought. They know this. It hasn't been a joyride for Paul. It's not that every time he preached the gospel, thousands wanted redemption. And of course, all the haters decided not to hate. It's different than that. And they know it. They have a shared experience in this that he can call upon them now. I'm not deserting, you are. And you know that I've been utterly consistent since the day that I've been with you. And if it was a popularity contest, I've really went a really weird pathway to popularity. How so? Well, look over in Galatians 4, and someday we'll make it this far. But if you look at chapter 4, and and you begin in verse 12, he's calling on their historical shared experience, their historical awareness. You know better than to listen to these people who are changing the facts on the ground to you now. You know better. Look at verse 12. And and I think what's interesting to note here as well, and and this is an aside, it's got very little to do with what I'm trying to share now, but I really want to stop and just briefly note to you how he still speaks to the church, deeply corrupted as brothers. I think that irenicism and sense of Catholicity is important for us to note. Again, this book is about precision. And so the preaching is going to take a tone of precision, as best as I'm able, because it's about getting things right. And it's not just simply affirmations that you arrive at. By way of affirmations, there are denials. I know that seems impossible, and it seems scandalous, but it's true. When you affirm, you deny. But there's a tone about the book, even through his his moves for affirmations and denials. There is still a catholicity of spirit that emerges, where he can call such a confused congregation, mixed as it is. He refers to them as brothers. There's something noteworthy there about discourse and about how we view fellow ministries and about how we view fellow uh, uh, Christians that attend to other denoms or, or, or attend to other churches. There a, there's a, needs to be some measure of Catholicity about our spirit towards fellow brothers, sisters, mothers, daughters, fathers, sons, in the faith. That's meaningful. So Paul has a takedown here. And yet, if you chart through the book and highlight the references that he appeals to them as brothers. That's noteworthy. But then he says, I entreat you. Again, a great rhetorical move. To entreat someone. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. For you did me no wrong. But remember, what we're exploring is he is calling upon them to remember past realities. These people who are on the ground there and simply saying, Paul's telling you have truths and he's just on a popularity tour. I'm calling upon you to realize and remember historical fact that we have shared, to know better, that that's not the man that I am, but I come bearing the truth at great cost to myself. You did me no wrong. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Do you see, do you see what he's doing? P- please get this, th- th- what, what his appeal is here. And it makes sense for verse 10. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, notice, it's a bodily ailment and it is a real condition. Like, like I, I, I was in bad situation when I was with you. And though my condition was a trial to you, they they somehow had to care for him, help him. It, It was a burden that you bore. You did not scorn or despise me. And yet I was a lot of work among you. See, he says, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Do you remember that? What then has become of the blessing you felt for i testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me have i then become your enemy by telling you the truth now again If you would turn to Acts 14, this will finally kind of complete this text for us. Of what he's arguing for, you know better. You You know that my gospel has been consistent. You know that it has been hard fought. It has been anything but a popularity contest. I haven't left out circumcision just so I can get more followers. I've been telling you the truth. Yeah, but we heard that if you leave out circumcision, it's a whole lot easier on you, and popularity uh, surges. That's not the case, and you know better. I came to you in great trial and bodily ailment. Now, where is this bodily ailment recorded but in Acts 14? This is a picture of where he ministered to them, the churches of Galatia. This is the historical awareness that he is trying to wake them up to. These are the historical realities that we had together. You and me. Me to you. You remember that it's not a popularity contest, but that I've gone through great difficulties to preserve and preach this gospel. It matters to me. It mattered to me then, and it mattered to me now beginning in verse 19 of chapter 14. Remember, just briefly, um, uh, Acts 13 and 14 is covering that historical period of his ministry among the churches of South Galatia. So what could he be referring to in chapter 4 of a bodily ailment? What is the event that he's drawing upon their historical awareness to remember? But this, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Notice just how severely beaten he was, supposing that he was dead. Now again, the uniqueness of the Lord's work in his life physically through ailment and healing and so forth, it's quite miraculous between verse 19 and by the time the text ends of verse 23. The Lord indeed, as he'll tell Timothy, has rescued me from all of them. But it's noteworthy, they drug him out of the city because they thought, well, just get the dead body out. He was severely stoned and beaten. Enough, again, where they felt he was dead. This is what he's speaking to the churches of Galatia regarding this historical event. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Uh, again, a miraculous outworking of, of the power of the Spirit of God. And on the next day, uh, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When he had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. that that southern Galatia region. Doing what? Strengthening the souls of the disciples. These are the folks he's now appealing to. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then notice the content of his encouragement to them, even then, and this is what he appeals for them to remember now. Now that it's never been about me and it's never been about popularity. He encouraged their faith and sang to them then about his own stoning. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then ecclesiastically look at the function he provided for these churches and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, this is not language of a man who believes we ought to modify the content of the gospel to win friends and influence others. He himself stoned for preaching, left for dead, and never modified the content that he preached. It's interesting just how bad this stoning was and impactful it was on the churches of South Galatia. Paul references it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he's speaking to the young minister. I'll simply read it for you. You don't need to turn there. But this was a very important event in the ministry of Paul. And you see the picture, don't you? Judaizers are on the ground, influencing these folks that he spoke to after that event, who received him in ailing health, though he were as dead. And he was a burden to them physically as they cared for him. And yet he spoke the gospel to them. They're now being corrupted by others who have come in and said, Paul was telling you half-truths the whole time. Why? Why? because he's a man pleaser and he's in it for himself paul is saying how would the body of evidence speak to that reality you know better you saw me at my physical worst have i now become your enemy You see, he refers these same events to Timothy as they were very pivotal events in his ministry. 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 12. Again, I'll just read it for you. He says this to the young minister. Again, not words of a man who says, modify content based on the direction of the wind. Rather, he tells the young minister, you, however, have followed my teaching what he's done the Galatian churches that they have done as well. In other words, he's making an appeal. You've charted my course and you've watched it and heard it and listened to it and received it as what? Consistent. You, however, have followed my teaching. He goes on to say, you followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, Okay. no he's telling you have truths why would he do that why would he left circumcision and lawful ceremonial following of moses why would he not have told us that if it was necessary for justification because he wants friends he's been deceitful paul says am i now different than i was you must prove the case for you have followed my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings. And then he draws attentions to a particular event. Timothy, you have followed my persecutions and my sufferings. Here it is. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, the events of Acts 14. Then he speaks of what we just read in Acts 14. The next day he was up on his feet and preaching. Paul says, Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. But what's the punchline for Timothy? What kind of minister ought he be in light of such realities? What kind of ministers should we at Redeemer strive to be a part of and be tethered to as ministers of the gospel? It is this, indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, he's not shying away from the reality in your life or the reality in mine. But yet, rather, he's raising the awareness of our own conscience in relation to some measure of persecution. There's some reflexiveness about persecution that indicates a desire to live a godly life. That is, if you take away all negativity, and everything is warm and fuzzy, and there's always a universal acceptance and understanding about your person, no matter the company, there's a question over the content of your godly life. As he tells Timothy, not just ministers, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, if if you pair the entire historical awareness together, the events of Acts 14, his exhortation to young Timothy, and as he now calls upon the Galatian church to make their case that he's a different man, these are not the words of a man who believes we should modify the content of the gospel to win friends and influence others. Indeed, persecution is tethered to gospel in an age that is passing away. So you see, Paul's preaching and the persecution that it has brought him makes it obvious that he never sought the praise of men. but Rather, at great cost to himself, he pursued the glory of God and the proclamation of truth. There's another piece of verse 10 I want to draw your attention to, and that is what he says at the end. Essentially, I'll read the text and then I'll try to modify his speech. But what he says, again, I hope it falls upon you to recognize that he's the one who is full of continuity in his own history. It is the church who has pivoted away from the gospel. By the way that he draws them from now must be proven versus the historical realities they're well aware of. For am I now seeking the approval of man? He's got a life littered of a path where it proved he was never seeking their approval. But then here's the other piece as it moves forward. Or am I trying to please man? Is that really what I'm doing? By telling you, you can live by grace through faith. Am I simply trying to please you? And here's the last piece I want to draw your attention to. If I were still trying to please man, if this is what I'm all about, I want you to know what it would mean. It would mean that I would not be a servant of Christ. Again, think of it in concert to chapter 1, all of the content to this point. And I would summarize Paul's words this way. If I modified the Catholic faith, in order to engender praise from fellow men, if that was my motivation, take what the church has proclaimed. Take the text as clearly communicated understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ and how one receives that work through the empty vessel of faith whereby they are are, uh, counted as righteous before God, as though they lived the life that Christ had lived himself. If I modified that Catholic faith in order to engender the praise of fellow men, if I'm guilty of doing that, then I would cease to be a servant of Christ Christ. All together, there is no middle ground. Now again, I think this is an important implication for all of us. This is what I want to conclude with you about in verse 10. Because sometimes we can think of that text in terms of just gospel sharing. Or we can think of it as ministers sometimes. We read it in light of Paul, the apostle, and then the pastors and ministers and evangelists and so forth through Ephesians 4 that's given to the church for their edification, teaching, instruction, and righteousness, for the building up of the body in order to do the work of the ministry, so on and so forth. And we can kind of pastoralize that comment that you'd cease to be maybe pastor and servant of Christ because the servant of Christ indeed is the minister. And Sometimes we forget that it's all of us his people, we're his servants. What's the implication of the statement then if we consider it more universally in light of all of us, each and every one of us, in the implication that if we're still trying to please man, we will cease to be servants of Christ altogether. You see, regardless of our station in life, Whether it's ministerial or not, no matter what we do or where we find ourselves Monday through Saturday, there's a particular burden here that we need to acknowledge about ourselves, no matter our station. And that is simply this all of us like to be liked. Again, it's not odd. Poorly pathological. It's normal. If I said it, who loves people hating them? Raise your hands. Not a lot of us. Except certain cranks among us, maybe. But no, truly, none of us. Many of us would rather always speak a word in a crowd or a group of friends or colleagues and desire immediate universal applause. Universal understanding and acceptance for what we just shared with the group. That's quite natural. It'd be odd if you didn't. But the warning here is this. As Paul cites so very clearly about his own life of integrity and truthful speech, that many in pursuit of this goal to be liked are prepared to say whatever people want to hear. This is the warning of the text. I simply share with you this word. There are two things you can say for sure about human beings. Our opposable thumbs make us great at using tools. And we are all big fat liars. By the age of four, 90% of children have grasped the concept of lying. And it just gets worse from there. Just how bad is it? Well, according to a 2002 study conducted by the University of Massachusetts... 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. I'll spare you the details of the study. If you think that you're not among the 40%, rethink. It gets pretty scary. The summary of the journal articles goes on to say we lie to everyone. The odd thing is this, and I think this is a better warning for each of us to take away from this text, about the issue of service in Christ and being truth-tellers, people who speak truthfulness. Because as Paul is articulating here, as he'll continue to articulate throughout the book, tied to the integrity of the gospel he's preached is the integrity of the medium himself. These two things are connected. My integrity as a human being to you and the words that come out of my mouth Being truthful, those two things, whether you're going to receive the words coming out of my mouth, bears somehow on me as a person being truthful. So this is an odd piece in the study. It goes on to say, but in general, we lie about things that aren't important. It's the little things. That we lie about most often. Things we think will make us look better or more likable. In a survey of a British film rental company, thirty percent of respondents had lied about seeing The Godfather. You get that's weird, odd. Why? Well, The Godfather is a classic film, so you assume everyone has seen it. Since you want to fit in with everyone, you tell a little white lie so you can fit in. You see, we need to be reminded, each of us, in these very moments, can we just recalibrate ourselves in a world where Twitter feeds are on fire and words are spilled without consequence constantly. We, the people of God, need to hear such a word from Paul as to be recalibrated, that our words do matter. That we should use our words wisely, and we ought to be using them truthfully. There are times in our lives to comfort, soothe, encourage, and praise. But there are also times in our lives to speak unpopular truth into the lives of those we love and care about at cost to ourselves. Particularly, truth about the gospel. If we will not, Paul says, we cease to be servants that Christ has called us to be. I'll end with this quote this morning. Some of you perhaps have read it. It's a really good book, written long, long time ago, it feels. I think I read it in junior high as a requirement. But nonetheless, it stands. Pastor Kent Hughes from Wheaton College Church, if you remember, he wrote a book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man. In it, he says this, quote, The church's great need for integrity is directly linked to the needs of our lost world for the world longs for liberation from dishonesty. Sure, it cultivates and promotes deception, but deep down inside, many people long to escape the pretense. A substantial number of people outside the four walls of the church will eagerly embrace the faith of believers who model the honesty and integrity For which they also long. Authenticity. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your grace as always. We hear such weighty things from your word, things that we as human beings cannot bear up. To think of speaking truthful all the time is too great of a burden for us to bear. Lord, we hear thou shalt not lie in your moral law for us. And yet, and we hear it And we cannot perform it. So God, as needy people, we ask for your strength to enable us to be that which we cannot on our own. Enable us by your spirit to be people who desire to tell truth. From small things to large things, to the stewardship of the church and its ministries, may we be truth speakers of the text of the word of God. Never crafting it or nuancing, just to increase followers. But yet we be compassionate in it, loving with it, and truthful always in our speak. As Paul tells the church of Ephesus, speak, brothers, the truth in love. Let us be those people we ask in your name. Amen.